chapter 5. I am really happy that you are here with me today to seek the Lord in his word. Uh, we meet the Lord in, in his word. He's, he comes and inhabits this place and is faithful to teach us. And, and more than being our teacher, he comes to indwell us by his spirit. He's with us and in us. And so we come to his, his written word, this inspired word. We're coming as coming to uh, the thing that makes us who we are as Christians, even. Um, we're coming to God himself speaking to his people and, and fulfilling his promise to be with us and leading us into all truth. So we take this seriously. Uh, we take it joyfully. Um, I'm just happy that I get to do it with you. Uh, look at verse 1, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read through verse 9. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. God, we make this our aim as well. Um, we want to have this perspective, this eternal perspective, this uh, right understanding of life now and the life that's coming that will swallow up mortality. Uh, we, we pray that it would be our aim, even in this short time on a Sunday morning, that we have that to be pleasing to you. So we offer you our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. We offer you our attention and our ears. Do as you will. Spirit, speak to your church and give us ears to hear. Verses 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. And the, these are all the verses we'll cover in 2 Corinthians today. But we'll also be spending a bit of time in Romans chapter 8. If you wanted to get a head start and put a bookmark there too, you'll be well prepared. Um, now, for now, it would be, be helpful to glance back at chapter 4 and see the context. In verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul said, we do not lose heart. And we kind of made a big deal out of that last week, didn't we? We do not lose heart. And he's saying the same kind of thing here where he says, we are always confident. We are confident, yes. And, and it's a pretty impressive thing to say to boast in this kind of confidence. It, it's a pretty impressive thing to say, we do not lose heart. Because if anyone had a reason to lose heart, it's a guy like Paul. His life was at times kind of terrible. And he'll tell you all about it in his book, 2 Corinthians. He wrote about how he and the other apostles were hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Were perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He's saying, as he says elsewhere, I die daily. 
I die daily. All of these sufferings he calls, by the way, light and momentary afflictions that are actually serving the purpose of preparing the sufferer for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we covered all of that last week. Paul's life kind of seems upside down. From the world's perspective, he's sort of a failure. Uh, he had written to the church in 1 Corinthians that without the hope of resurrection, Christians are, of all men, the most to be pitied. And, and, and it's really this truth that the resurrection flips everything right side up that changes defeat into victory that Paul is talking about now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's part of this paradox, this seemingly backwards, inside-out thing that God does in storing heavenly treasures in jars of clay and in making his strength perfect in weakness. God is working in unexpected ways. God is using unqualified people and unorthodox methods to accomplish things that are, from our vantage point, impossible. Not least of these things, making the unknowable God completely knowable and embodied in this world. He's doing that through weak people like Paul. A shift in perspective is needed for this to be understood. For the world of Paul to make sense. For the world of the church to make sense. For a world in which the gospel can actually be a rule of life that we live out day to day here. For that to make sense, we have to see things differently and we have to see different things. And that's what Paul ended with in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 18, if you want to glance back, he says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that leads us right into chapter 5, where he explains more about how the visible, tangible world, which he's maybe getting a little bit of criticism for. He's like, Paul, your life is terrible. Like, why do we want that kind of Christianity? And how can we trust you if when, you know, you're not succeeding at this, you get, keep getting thrown in jail, shipwrecked, all this stuff. So like, where, where's your credentials? How do we know that this whole thing works? He says, you're looking the wrong direction. You're looking at the wrong things. You're, lo you're not looking at the right credentials. And he, he's explaining now about how the visible, tangible world we live in is not a permanent state. Verse one, he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He's talking about this life, uh, the, the bodily existence we have, the mortal coil that will be shuffled off. Now, right now, our lives are made up of things we can see. By design, our current lives are made up of the things of earth. That's just the way it is. But Paul keeps saying that his life is being destroyed, that death is always at work in us, how he's persecuted, perplexed, struck down, all those things. So how does he have such confidence to continue being struck down, perplexed, persecuted, and have death working in him day by day? How does he have such confidence? And how does he say, we do not lose heart? Because he knows that the destruction of this earthly house is not the destruction of his heavenly home. This is talking about more than just getting new bodies that don't wear out, but that's kind of exciting, so let's start there. Paul, Paul somehow is comfortable, as comfortable as a person can be, with the destruction of his own body, knowing that the absence from the body is presence with the Lord, and knowing that God will raise up a new body for him. Paul knew that his body would one day die. I think he probably expected it to be destroyed in the service of Jesus, and he would be right. He was beheaded in Rome for his witness. 
but he knew that that would not be the end of anything really important. And since he had already developed the perspective of not looking at the things which are seen, he lived with the hope of the unseen. When your body aches, you can have hope of resurrection. In fact, when your body aches from age, injury, or disease, or persecution, let the twinge of pain be a call to you to grasp on to the eternal things that have been promised to you. And I don't offer that encouragement lightly because physical pain cannot be taken lightly. It's the worst. It's terrible. Disease and pain have the smell of sin all over them. It's not a sin to be sick or to hurt, for sure. But something about hurting and the kind of suffering under sickness that we undergo reminds us of the presence of an enemy that just won't seem to die. It's death. Death is called in scripture our last enemy, and we recognize its presence in sickness and suffering. Now, we talked about this a little bit when we looked at the treasure hidden in jars of clay. But even though we see our body's failings as evidence, both of the fall of, of nature, of sin being in existence, and just the body's temporary nature, we wear out. We don't last forever. We need to think of this tent, then, as, yes, the physical body that's wearing away, but certainly more than just your physical body. We often think of the jars of clay or the disposable tent that Paul is talking about as these corruptible physical bodies which are aging and being destroyed. That's certainly part of it because the hope of resurrection is a hope of a bodily resurrection. The discussion of the tent and the house is appropriately tied to the material physical bodies we have. The hope you have in a new body is well-placed. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But just as our suffering in this life is certainly not limited to the physical sufferings. In fact, anyone who's lived a little will probably say the worst sufferings are not physical. So also the hope of your resurrection goes far beyond the merely physical. The tent you live in is more than your skin. The eternal dwelling place in the heavens is more than a new body. The resurrection life is more. It's the whole life, the whole of existence, not just the body. This is how we can talk sometimes about how eternal life is beginning now, not just when we die. We're already living in part of this eternal life as we walk with the Lord, even though our physical bodies haven't got the news yet, apparently. And the, the building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, that's more than just a perfect body. That's the entirety of your heavenly existing existence, including, but in no way limited to, a new body to live in. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many mansions, he's not only talking about preparing a body for you, but a heavenly life. So as we go on, realize, yes, Paul is talking about the hope of resurrection for the physical body. And he says, they'll kill this one. That's fine. I've got a new one waiting for me. It's okay. But, but the body, talking about the body is a way of saying our entire observable life in this material universe, which again, for Paul had all the appearance of failure and all the hope of heaven. In verse 2, he says, For in this, in this tent that we're in right now, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
It says, in this we groan. That's a word that Paul uses elsewhere to describe the physical world anticipating its redemption. Listen to Romans 8. This is the first time I'll be going to Romans 8. It won't be the last. We'll be there a long time, okay? Romans 8, verse 21 says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We, the adopted sons and daughters, are waiting for another level of adoption, the fullness of our adoption. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we are waiting for the fullness of the Spirit. And, and Paul says that includes the redemption of the body. It's the same, he uses the same word here to groan. We groan under the weight of decay and sin in the grave, earnestly desiring to be further clothed. This idea of clothing with something from heaven is not unique to Paul. You might think of Jesus teaching the parable in Matthew 22 about a wedding. And the one who did not have the proper wedding garment is cast out. At the end of Luke, Jesus says that the thing we're to be clothed in is the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, 49, he says, remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the end of Luke. And then Luke has his sequel, the book of Acts. And it begins by saying that the power from on high is the Holy Spirit himself. Elsewhere, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Colossians 3, 1. We know we're told to put on the full armor of God. That's another type of clothing, I suppose. And then in Revelation, we see the saints clothed in white garments, which any good Christian would think is the righteousness of Christ. And that's not what it says. Uh, we're always thinking about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is what we want. But it, what it says is the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation 19, verse 8. We desire to be clothed in all of these things. All this body, this life is passing away. The tent decays along with all of our works that were not heavenward. All of the trappings of the lives we've made here on earth that don't have heaven as their end goal, but that gets burned up. We talked about that last week. So what remains? What will God clothe, clothe us with when these rags finally wear out? With the Holy Spirit himself, with virtue, with the righteous deeds of the saints. These immaterial certainties are contrasted with the temporary nature of these other things, the things that seem real only because we can see them. When Paul longs for heaven in the, the weakness of this physical life as his body is attacked and his soul is tormented and his emotions are all over the place, when he longs for heaven, he is longing for a permanence and a surety that this life in all its changing decay lacks. Mortality, as we know it, is shifting. It's a decaying thing. It's change from order to disorder. And he sees it everywhere he looks. I'm sure you do too. What Paul is looking forward to is this vacillating mortality being swallowed up in life. Life is order from disorder. It's the seed sending down roots and the first little green shoots in spring. It's growing, developing, maturing. And while there's change in life, it is an upward change towards maturity that gives certainty and assurance and a sense of permanence. We have this concept of life because the giver of life is the one who changes not, whose compassions 
they fail not. We have this idea of life as this victorious certainty because we have the words of Jesus in our ears, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as this tent wastes away, we groan for the day when it, us, and all things are swallowed up by life itself. All things will find their end, their purpose, their ultimate meaning in Jesus himself, for whom all things are made. Even our sufferings and our decaying bodies will have to answer to the one who wipes every tear away. This kind of perspective is what kept Paul going, to be sure. It's what enabled him to say, we are confident. We do not lose heart. It, it was what gave him the ability to call his sufferings light and momentary afflictions. Because he was just using a, a larger timetable. It's what enabled him to say, I therefore boast in my weaknesses. It was this idea of resurrection, of knowing that the victory exists on the other side. And it's life that wins, not death. That could enable Paul to say, yeah, his grace is sufficient, absolutely. Now, another really important thing that Paul is doing here in this section of Scripture is he's correcting any sort of anti-material thinking that could be going around. Now, a whole lot of the philosophers of his day and age and for centuries before and since had taught that the physical was bad, the spiritual immaterial was good, and that's the way it was. And you can... Uh, there are Gnostic heresies that had picked up on this. You can easily see how people would come to Paul's writing uh, through one reading with one eye closed, kind of with their glasses off, and then say, yeah, oh yeah, I see it. The tent is decaying. We got a better house. Physical's bad. Spiritual's good. It's not so hard to get from Paul's writing to a super spiritual, anti-physical kind of thinking. But in order to get there, you'd have to skip over this passage and you have to skip over the meaning of these verses. He's very intentional when he says, I'm not wishing to be unclothed, but further clothed. I think he's kind of making fun of those super spiritual people that just want to be, he's like, yeah, okay, so in heaven you want to be like naked all the time? Is that what, that's what you think this is, this is, no, that's not the point. I want more life, not death. I don't want the candle to be snuffed out in pure darkness. I want more life. That's what I'm moving towards says, I'm not wishing to be unclothed, but further clothed. If clothing is the metaphor of the physical body and the physical life, Paul's making sure he's not giving the impression that his hope is to simply be disembodied. Poof. To be spiritual for the Christian does not mean to be anti-physical. But remember, the tent is more than the body. It's the whole life, which means the idea of being further clothed rather than just disembodied is also more than just getting a new body and hanging out on a cloud with a robe and a harp. Paul is working hard and suffering for the gospel, and he's not looking forward to a kind of retirement in heaven where there's no more Christianity, because that was exhausting, you know? He's not, he's not hoping for an end of this life because he's wanting an anti-life. He's wanting more life, abundant life, which is what Jesus says he came to give, right? Pressed down, shaken, overflowing. For Paul, it wasn't this life, versus, this life versus that life. It was the idea that this life, in its fragility, in its sufferings, will one day blossom into that life. The oak and the acorn are not in competition. Paul is hoping, and we are hoping, not for a dark, silent nothing, but a vibrant, feasting, glorious life with all the joys of this life, but no longer in seed form, 
all the goodness of this created world, but with none of the sin-caused pains. God made a garden and called it good. He didn't take it back. We're not looking forward to gardens being uprooted. We're looking forward to thorns being defeated. Do you see the difference? Now, skip verse 5 just for a second. We'll come back to it. But for now, look and see how all of this that we've been saying colors Paul's view of life and death itself. Verse 6, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is the same thing that Paul says in Philippians when he was looking death in the face. He says, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I can't lose. This life is a walk, not of sight, but of faith. Everywhere, or sorry, elsewhere, the scripture says, stand firm in the faith. Now we're told, walk by faith. There's forward motion. The decisions you make day to day, moving towards your goals and the ultimate goal of heaven. We are familiar with the principle of being saved by faith, but we are also moving forward in our salvation by faith. We're, we're moving forward in our salvation and our sanctification by the same means. We're walking by faith. And this faith develops in us a proper attitude towards life and death. Death makes us present with Jesus. We have nothing to fear. Being at home in the body is really being intentionally homeless then. Being home in the body that's decaying, in the tent. Remember, in his metaphor, when he says at home in the body, he's talking about this, this body of death. That's, how, that's what he called it elsewhere, right? He's, he's saying, if, if that's your home, if this is all you have, again, you're of all men the most to be pitied. To make the tent your home is to be very short-sighted. The Lord is your home. To consider the fading, failing, temporary trappings of this life as permanent is misguided. It's, it's choosing a, a homelessness that, that isn't yours. We are being prepared in this walk of faith, not for a permanence here, but for something far greater. We are being prepared for unbroken fellowship with Jesus himself. And the way that you are being prepared for that is through the trials and troubles of this life that cast you upon the rock of ages. And the one who is preparing us for these things is God himself. Verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What is God preparing us for? Well, himself. You could say for heaven. You'd be right about that. He's preparing you for a, a, a permanent life, an eternal life, where he is the Son, he is all the satisfaction. And for a life directed towards that end, he's preparing you as well. He's preparing you now for how you're going to be a better heaven-focused, Jesus-resembling Christian in 10 years. He's preparing you for that. He has prepared us for the moment that's coming of being further clothed when we are changed in a twinkling of an eye, when mortality and all that goes along with it will be swallowed up in victory. We're made for heaven. God has prepared us for heaven. So we live according to these truths. We live as if we were made for another world, hoping in things unseen but sure. Now, as sure and steadfast as the object of our hope is, we're still caught in the middle, aren't we? Let's be real about this. We still have to bring this whole thing back to earth and realize, yeah, there's a mansion prepared for me and a better body and I'm made for heaven and God himself has prepared us for this very thing, but I'm not there yet. So what do I hold on to now? 
Well, you've been given a guarantee, a promise, a ticket, a receipt, a rope tied around you and then anchored behind the veil that you hold on to. It says God has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Now you can see this passage is still sort of an echo or a precursor to the passage in Romans 8 that I already started reading. In Romans 8, you see these two ideas tied together. Our bodies will be redeemed and the Holy Spirit's present is present in us now. These are linked together. Romans 8.23 said that we have the Spirit and we groan for the redemption of the body. These are two things that go together. They're not in competition. The spiritual person is not the person that isn't hoping for redemption. That's just content and content in pain or suffering or whatever. No, no, the Spirit-filled person is groaning. In Romans 8.24, it says, For we are saved we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The spirit-filled life is not just contentment in whatever comes your way. It is persevering through things that you are discontent in. This is a call. There is a call, excuse me, in the meanwhile. This is what we do when we're caught in the in-between where our bodies are still decaying and our lives still have the downward-tending spiral that we inherited from Adam. We hold on to a guarantee who is the Spirit of God. Paul uses this title for the Holy Spirit in Ephesians as well, the guarantee, the seal. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 sort of spells out the testimony of every Christian who has ever been saved says, in whom also having believed, talking about believing in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In Romans, he says it's the redemption of our bodies, which he purchased, right? We are no longer our own. Body, soul, and spirit, we belong to him. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, like a signet ring pressed in wax. His mark is on you. The mark of the Holy Spirit is on you. You have been clothed in the uniform of the Holy Spirit, and all heaven and hell knows your citizenship and which army you're fighting for and under whose banner you serve. This is something that has been done to you. It's over you, on you. It doesn't depend on your feelings or anything. However, in asking the question, how do I, what do I hold on to? How do I cling? How do I hope for these things? How do I direct my heart towards this heavenly home and not be consumed with my temporary tent? There is an action for you to do. And it is this, this clinging to the Holy Spirit, to this clothing, to this promise, to this guarantee. Hoping in heaven looks like holding on moment by moment to the Spirit of God that dwells in you. And if you're still asking, what does that look like? Glad you asked. Back to Romans. We've read Romans 8.22, which says that the created world groans for redemption. 8.23 says it's not just only creation out there. You were created too, you know. So it's us that are, we are groaning for this redemption. We have the spirit in us. We eagerly await adoption and we groan for the redemption of the body. And then we we read in Romans 8, 24 and 25, it says that hope is by definition an attachment to something that is unseen. A wonderful cross-reference from 2 Corinthians 4, 18. We don't look at the things that are seen to the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporary. Things that are unseen are eternal. We're connecting all the dots, right? And now we're at this place where we realize there's now and then there's later. And later's better. 
And we realize that there's seen and unseen, but the unseen is the more real of the two. And we realize that there is a spiritual life, and by spiritual, we don't mean unphysical. We mean a life that is marked, led, and even defined by the spirit of the living God that dwells in you. And it is a life that is groaning, hoping, anticipating a final redemption of our bodies and our life. It's easy to read all of this and say, okay, there's heaven and there's now, and now isn't so great. I hear heaven's better. I don't feel like I'm growing towards heaven the way I should. How do I, how do I reconcile my at-homeness here with that which is yet to come? And Romans again, sorry, Romans again, 8.26, it anticipates this feeling of inadequacy and says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to cling to heaven like we should. But the ache, the desire itself, the wordless angst of our perceived homelessness, of living in a tent that's being destroyed, there are prayers of the heart that are nothing more than groaning of heaving a, a sigh, and the longing itself is evidence of the Spirit's help. And we cling to that. We cling to Him in our discontent, waiting for the redemption of the body. It was difficult not to just turn this entire sermon into Romans 8, but the answers to the questions posed in 2 Corinthians 5 really are all found in Romans 8. Uh, we see the parallels with the groaning, with redemption, with the life in the Spirit. And we see the word guarantee in both passages, which is a promise that you hold on to, that you turn in like a ticket or a receipt to the one who gave it in order to receive the fullness of that which is promised. Uh, so until that time, we hold on to the, the promise, the guarantee, which, we, which is in us, who is the Spirit of God. And it's in Romans 8 that we then find the well-known promise to hold on to. To cling to. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And then it's in verse 31 and 32 of Romans 8. It says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's a promise. You have the receipt. Hold on to it. And then it gets better. In verse 37, he writes, Yet in all all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all things includes death itself, which is where Paul's coming from in 2 Corinthians 5. This ties us back to what he's been saying in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 and 5 about this temporary life full of suffering, about this apparent weakness, about jars of clay are, obtain, are containing treasures inside, how even death is working in Paul. Uh, producing in him life in the long term, and how hope for these living, uh, those living in these disposable tents now is not to be homeless one day and get out of the tent, but it's to live in mansions of glory prepared for us by Jesus himself. Yes, there's warfare, but we're the winners. Why? Romans 8, verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's promise after promise 
yours given to you by the Spirit of God. It's a long list of all your inheritance as adopted sons and daughters. It's a series of treasures that we hold in these clay vessels, these hopes which are placed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. They're rightfully yours, and we cling to them and groan. And what that looks like in one way is what we see in verse 9. We're going to look at verse 9 just real quick, and we'll start here next week with the same verse. But in verse 9, it says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Therefore answers the question, so what now? We've covered a lot. We've talked about the body and the temporary life and our hope that is, isn't for less life but more life. We don't want to be disembodied. We want glorified bodies and this hope of heaven which is both joyful and painful to hold on to. We rejoice in hope but groan for redemption. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. It's evidence of the Spirit's ministry in your heart. And he directs our hearts towards the fullness of our adoption that's coming. And in the meanwhile, it is this guarantee of heaven that we have in the Spirit of God that we cling to. And this clinging looks like aiming. It's walking, not just standing. It's walking. It's directional and intentional. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, whether absent or present. Because we have that hope in heaven, this new perspective of what lasts, what doesn't, what's real, what isn't, because we know that a glorified life awaits us, because we know that he is adopting us, because we know that when we die, we will be with him, we make it our aim now to be well-pleasing to him. Hope looks like obedience for the church. Whether in life or death, we seek to please the Lord. If the clay pots are crumbling, and they are, and the tents are showing some wear and tear, letting some water in in the storms, let's seek to please the Lord. When we recognize, you know, from, from the number six, from Aaron's blessing, that a blessed life is when the face of the Lord shines on us, seek the face of the Lord. When he lifts up his countenance upon us, live your life, whether here or there, make it your aim to have the smile of the Lord upon you. Let's seek that kind of blessing. Let us seek the joy of the Lord. We say without faith, it's impossible to please God. But now as we walk by faith, we are seeking his pleasure we walk by faith, not by sight, we are clinging to the promises of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust you. We love you. We ask that your blessing, your face shining upon us, your lifting, uh, the lifting of your countenance upon us, that these blessings would be ours. We pray for the heavenly perspective that we see in this passage. We pray for the hope of heaven. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be in us and with us, leading us in this anticipation towards the redemption of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy You are sent.